This episode of the Bamboo Pastors Podcast has been brought to you by the Growth Center for Church and Mission. The Growth Center has established the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader, a ministry ecosystem which brings together pastors, ministry leaders, and marketplace leaders who are finding creative ways to utilize their faith and their talents to bring the gospel to the cities and communities they live in. Check them out at thegrowthcenter.com. Welcome to the Bamboo Pastors Podcast, a podcast that explores the joys and challenges of being an English-speaking pastor in a Chinese church. I'm Jalen Chan, and I'm here with my co-host, John Mon. Hey, everyone. Together, we host the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. We're glad that you're here with us. Come on in and have a seat at the table. All right. Welcome back to the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Jalen. I'm John. It's great being here with you listeners. Thank you for joining us as always. Jalen, it's good to see you and good to hang out. What have you been up to? How has your week been? Good to see you, John. So this week, um, we made the decision as an English congregation to not join our Chinese congregation for our annual all-church retreat. I think there's still probably some Chinese churches out there that do these annual retreats with you know, all of their, all of the members of their congregations. Um, and so Chinese congregation, English congregation go for our church. We also partner with our sister church that we planted and then another church um, who we had, we, we had one of our guests on last year, William Wu, uh, who uh, leads, uh, you know, an English congregation. Uh, their church also joins us. So there's five congregations that go. And so our, our church kind of decided that we would re- restart this after, the last two years not doing it because of COVID and stuff. And so they, you know, the Chinese congregation said, let's do it. We're going to do it. English congregation, do you guys want to join us? And so, you know, I, I kind of had our leaders talk with our congregation and I was thinking, you know, maybe it would be 50, 50 Uh, people would want to go. People would not want to go, but it ended up that almost everybody wanted to do their own thing. Like we wanted to do our own thing. Uh, and so they were a little bit, I think, still hesitant about joining in with, like, you know, five congregations and mm. having all those people together. And so out of that was the suggestion of, well, let's not join the all church retreat, but let's do a separate English ministry retreat, um, which we've never done before. And so um, we're, we're thinking through that now, praying through it. And, you know, we're, we're gonna have to start planning for that. But uh, I'm I'm kind of excited about it, but I'm also a little bit saddened that we're not going to be able to, to do the, mm. the joint thing. Uh, so yeah. I'm kind of processing that still. That's really fresh for us right now and thinking about that. But uh, so I'm, I'm, yeah, praying through that. But um, otherwise, sounds like there's there's some trade offs there. Like there, you know, there's definitely good things that can happen when it's language specific, probably a lot smoother some of the planning and not having to translate and relationally probably can get deeper, but then you miss out on some of the cross church and even inter-church relationship building. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's exciting. I I think anytime there's new things, that's exciting. It is. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, how are you doing? Good to see you. Uh, I'm doing well. Um, You know, this weekend, uh, I think I mentioned this last week when we recorded or a couple of weeks ago um, that we were going to do our first, um, like church lunch in a long time, not just even pre pandemic, but I think because in the past, our church services, we had like two English services in the morning. And so it was hard to do a church lunch when you have back to back services, but now we're, we we've merged those services into one. And so we did a church lunch after our service ended. And one of the things that I really, I, I guess, um, we had talked about it, but it didn't really click until I 
was listening to, um, you know, our English pastor, Pastor Ted, um, kind of walk us through this, but he really f- did a really great job of framing our post-church luncheon as an extension of our communion. And so actually the decision we made a, a few weeks ago when we decided to do this was that we would always do church lunch when we had communion, um, like our monthly uh, time at the Lord's table as an extension of that table fellowship um, with one another. And so I think that really has helped me um, or given me a, a new perspective on church lunch. Cause I know before when I was like a kid, we'd have church lunch at church. I'd be like, Oh, I don't want to eat Chinese food. We eat Chinese food at home all the time. It's just food. And and now, you know, I want to go get something else, but um, I have a new, a newer appreciation, I think, um, especially of it in this season. So that's been really good. But yeah, today has been one of those days where it was just like nonstop meetings, like literally going from one thing to the next, um, you know, basically from 9am all the way until this call, I had meetings either online in person or, um, you know, it, or in the office or something like that. And so it's just been one of those crazy days. And uh, I'm thankful that we're we're, we're, this is the last thing on my thing, on my, uh, on my list of things to do today. And this doesn't feel like work. It's just a fun time hanging out together. So, um, yeah, I'm thankful that I made it to this point and that we can record now. So, yeah, I want to go back to the ch- church lunch thing. What are you guys having for, <laughs> what are you guys having for your first church lunch then? <laughs> no. So this, uh, this past week we had, um, we had pizza for, for the whole church, uh, for all the whole English congregation. And they, yeah. they got it from, um, a pizza place that's that's like local to San Jose or maybe to California. I don't know. I, I've never seen one of those in in uh, the Midwest, but it wasn't anything fancy, you know, just just different kinds of pizza for everyone. And um, yeah. yeah, I think everyone was really worried that we wouldn't have enough, but we prayed the Lord would multiply it. And somehow I went home with a whole pizza. So it was pretty fantastic. Nice. That yeah. is always the fear, right? <laughs> when you're in a gathering with Chinese people, it's if you run out of food, that is the, the greatest sin. Yeah. Of yeah. table gatherings. So. But when was the last time a Chinese church had a gathering that didn't have enough food? I mean, I feel like that's it's the thing. That's the thing. Rare. We don't want to sin that way. That's so, true. <laughs> you know, but anyways, yeah. yeah, well, I'm glad that we get to do this. This is your last thing for the day. And definitely it is a great time for us to hang out. But also I'm excited for today because today we have Josh Coe, who is the English congregation pastor of Fraser Lands Church in Vancouver, BC, which is in Canada. And he's joining us today. We're really excited to have Josh on. Actually, I know Josh from uh, maybe more than 25 years ago. Dating uh, I, me. Oh. <laughs> I dabbled in some different um youth groups when I was in like middle school and high school, because I lived further away from where my home church was in Chinatown. We lived out in the suburbs in Naperville. And so um, I spent some time at the church where Josh was serving yeah. and that he was a part of, and he was actually the worship. He, he, he led worship um, for a lot of the, the youth groups that I would attend um, at that church. And I just remember that those times were so impactful for me. And, um, you know, I, I I don't know if you remember this, Josh, but those when good praise nights, man. Mm. Yeah, those praise nights were awesome. I love those so much. And and you led a seminar or a workshop on leading worship from piano at one point. And I took a lot from that. And I don't know if I've ever gotten a chance to like thank you for that. But you know, twenty five years later, I'll, oh, I want to say thank you. So thanks. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, I've learned something since. But that's good. <laughs> yeah. Good to be on here, gentlemen. Thanks for the invite. I'm still trying to scratch my head and figure out how you found me all the way up in the boonies of Canada. 
it's great having you on the podcast with us. We've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, you know, with with our guests, anytime we have someone that comes on with us for the first time, we always love to hear a bit of their journey. And and I know Jalen's known you since a long time ago, but um, I don't really know where you've been since your time in Naperville to to now in Canada. Um, and so can you walk us through or just share briefly with us a bit of your ministry journey and your calling into ministry? How do you find yourself at the church that you're at now? Yeah, totally. I um, I'm an immigrant to two countries an immigrant to the United States, an immigrant to Canada now. Um, my parents brought me to uh, the U.S. when I was little, probably four or five years old. I was actually born in Penang, Malaysia. Yay, Malaysian food. And uh, grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, Naper Thrill, yeah. Um, and went to a Mandarin-speaking Chinese church there f for most of my life until I left for Vancouver. So that was like, I was 26 years old when I left. Um, which meant I had been in that church a long time from like grade one or kindergarten all the way up and through till I was 26 um, and never left actually. I think when I moved up to Canada was the longest time I had been away from that church for more than one month since I was little. Um, so I had a real like that was my home church. They were the sending church. They were the church that that um, to this day, I've never heard this story. They were the church that blessed me and said, we're going to pay for your room. We're going to pay for your uh, education plus room and board, 80% uh, of total cost of living. And they did that for five years. And then they said, you don't have to come back. We're blessing you for the kingdom. Um, that was amazing. And so shout out to Chinese Christian Mandarin Church, CCMC where I grew up um, out in the suburbs of western suburbs of Chicago. I went to Wheaton College, that was my undergrad. Um, it was there that I began exploring my sense of call. I was there for this infamous um, revival that took place on the student campus um, my freshman year. And um, that during that revival, one of the last nights, they had a call for full-time overseas missions. And like hundreds of people went for it. I remember I was sitting in this big long pew and there were only two of us still left when all the wrestling finished. And I remember I peeked, right? I cheated. So I looked up and, and peeked a little and I noticed there's only two of us. And I'm like, God, I'm ready. And that was the first time I prayed in my heart, God, if you want me, I'll go. So I was waiting for that. I don't know what I was exactly waiting for. That tap on the shoulder in the heart. And, and I didn't get it. I didn't get it from the Holy Spirit. And so I just sat. But that was the first time I really had said, God, my life is yours. Like, you, you, it's up to you what you want to do. And so I just started exploring, went on some mission trips, thought that was a way to figure stuff out. And, and all along the way, God just started growing my heart for the church. I was actively serving in the youth ministry that Jalen was describing earlier. And um, as I was ministering there, um, an opportunity to work as a part-time youth intern opened up in my church. And I was just graduating. And I was like, this is perfect. I'm like this young Chinese American guy who's grown up in my church, wants to serve the Lord. I'm going to put my application in. It's going to be great. My pastor and my mom denied my application. And I was like, what is going on? And they're like, you're not mature enough. I'm like, ow. Like, you know, Chinese churches, man, they take an average back then. I don't know about now, but they took an average of over two years to find a youth guy. And they would stay for less than two years on average. Mm -hmm. Right. So the fact that I was willing to do that and then they said no, I mean, like, how bad must have I been as a candidate? <laughs> so I, I call up my uncle who's out in Sacramento and I was like, what do I do now? And he's actually always a pastor 
and he goes get a job and i'm like no nine to five that sounds terrible and so i went and i like i didn't know what to do i was like a psych major i had no idea what to do with my life and so i'm like i ended up going and doing some temp work at a prison furniture manufacturing company and then i went from that to assistive technology which was really cool for a while working for a guy who had um who's a quadriplegic um himself and it was during that time our our church shifted to look for a full-time youth director and it was a couple of years later and i felt god saying you need to apply for that and i'm like you know what happened the first time um, i was actually helping them look for somebody back then um so it was interesting i didn't stop serving and so i, I reapplied again and this time the church was ready for me and i was ready for the church um and i took that position and worked it three or four years before i realized i have no idea what i'm doing and i need to go get some school and so i um i applied to trinity i got in and uh, this is Trinity in Chicago and I, uh, Ted, and I, I, then I felt no peace about it. Um, and I didn't know why. And so I deferred and then reapplied to Regent College out in Vancouver, BC, because someone, one of my Korean American professors at Wheaton told me if I ever went to seminary to think about Regent, because uh, hmm. of what was being offered there at the time. And, you know, me being grown up in like this super like, um private school bubble you know christian school bubble you know regents on a public university campus in a very secular city like on the coast with a ton of asians and it was like total change for me right so i moved i went and checked it out felt the lord speaking to me there and decided to move so 2002 packed my couple boxes and moved myself out to a city where i didn't know anybody and um, i've been here ever since I thought I was going to come out for like three years, finish my degree, go back to the U.S. where, you know, real ministry happens. And and it just never happened. I stayed out here. Uh, it took me six years to finish my, my MDiv. I got MDiv Plus, I call it, and um, met my wife here, who's Korean-American, Jenny from Portland. And we she's also an American. Yeah, so we got married up here. Our relationship's 100% Canadian. Um, people will know what I'm talking about when I say I got my London Drugs marriage certificate to prove it. Um, and, uh, we've stayed ever since I've served in three different churches. Two of them are Chinese churches would be labeled as Chinese churches, but I began my first ministry position as a worship pastor at a majority culture Canadian church, um, that had about a 20% visible minority population, mostly mainly Chinese, um, stayed there for four years and then transitioned to an Alliance Church, Chinese Alliance Church, the Vancouver Chinese Alliance Church, which is the equivalent of the CCUC in Canada, in, in, mm. in Vancouver. Mm. Um, they had a teens camp too. And uh, and now I'm at the sister church of that church called Fraserlands. Mm. That's my journey. Very cool. Yeah, I love hearing those stories and I really appreciate just being able to trace God's working in your life and, and even some of those disappointments that you probably felt Oh yeah, and seeing how God was using that to shape you and form you. That's, I love hearing those stories. Yeah. It's not a straight line for sure. For anyone who um, thinks that, you know, you just get tapped on the shoulder and then the next day you're like, you know, the Tim Keller of the world, that does not how it works. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that I know that you've been thinking through in your context, um, uh, as you said earlier, Vancouver being a very diverse city is, sort of the intersection between race, culture, and faith. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the similarities and differences between Chinese heritage churches in Canada 
how they wrestle with those issues versus how you see some of the Chinese heritage churches in the States wrestling with yeah. issues of like race and culture and faith. Obviously that's a big thing for, <laughs> for any church to be, to be wrestling with right now, but for Chinese heritage churches in particular, um, what do you see happening in Canada? What do you see happening here in the States? And how, what are some of the similarities and differences there? Similarities and differences, uh, immigration patterns are very similar. So when the U.S. closed its borders to, to Asian, East Asian immigration in the late 1800s and 1900s, uh, Canadians did the same thing. Uh, the Canadians also used Chinese labor for their railroads, and most of their BC infrastructure is built by Chinese people. Um, so you got a lot of Toysan folks out here. Those are going to be the ones who've been around the longest. The coasts obviously have Chinese that are have been around um, this continent the longest. So you're going to meet the grandmas and grandpas with no accents. Whereas in Chicago, that would have been a weird thing to experience, except maybe down in like the you know bowels of Chinatown. Um, my parents came in the U.S. You know, in that first wave of immigration after the '60s, right when they opened up again, and they were mostly the PhD scholar types, right. Um, I think the same thing happened in Canada. And so there's waves of Chinese immigration and Asian immigration that have come through the city. Hong Kong, Hong Kong was a huge impetus for the shift in Vancouver um, because of the changeover that happened. A huge population of, um, of Hong Kong residents immigrated to Toronto and Vancouver, right? So uh, that remains the same today. We were just talking about in our staff meeting. We're literally getting um, uh, messages on Telegram and other kinds of like social media um, chat things. Our, our Cantonese pastors right now are getting messages almost daily of people asking to be picked up from the airport who are coming in fresh, like landing in Vancouver and immigrating um, because of what's happening in Hong Kong right now. So in many ways, the Chinese churches in Vancouver feel a re revitalization occurring right now because they're getting fresh waves of new immigrants that are very different from those other waves, right? They're not as poor. They have more money and more education. A lot of them already speak English, um, but they're, they're fleeing just like, just like populations before the insecurity and, and uh, potential transfers of power. Um, so because of those waves, I think of immigration, the the story of how the first generation Chinese pastors got formed are very similar to the U.S. Right? These are like the the first gen pastors who got like their their dabble in faith in their student movements on their campuses, and then they just basically left country and came here. And, and I think what happens to all of them is their culture freezes, right? Like so, what what they were experiencing, the music they sang, the way the services were done, the, all that kind of stuff just came with them in frozen time. And they just, that's all they knew. And that's all they could hold on to. Um, Sun Chan Ra once, they, he, he put a, he showed this little um, exercise where it's like he dumps a, a pile of marbles on a table and he says, try to keep the marbles from falling off. And that's the immigrant experience, right? If your marbles are your kids and they're just spending all the time corralling their kids and making sure they don't fall off the table. And that's like where all their energy goes. Uh, I think one of the major differences between Canada and the US um, now I'm just exposed to mostly Western Canada. So I think Eastern or Ontario is going to be a different scene. But what I've noticed in the West is the Chi they don't call themselves Chinese Canadians. There's no Asian American equivalent up here. Hmm. There's CBC, Chinese born, uh, Canadian born Chinese. Like I hear that. 
they don't identify themselves as Chinese Canadian, uh, Indo Canadian. Like, like that's not really a phrase. They'll just basically say I'm Canadian or I'm Chinese, um, and, and they don't really use that hyphenation designation because what I've noticed is the Canadian cultural sort of um, uh, pressure, peer pressure, isn't nearly as strong as the American one. Hmm. American subculture and um, what it means to be American just swallows everybody up. It just feels like everybody just has to conform and melt into this this thing that's called American. And so you have your little flavor of what it means to be American, but man, you better not stick out too much because you you got at the end of the day you've got to like belong. Whereas you know in Vancouver, there's so many Asians. People like are still very you know excuse the term very fobby. Right, like they, they can still hang on to all their K-pop and their Hong Kong H-K-pop and their Canto pop and their whatever, and they can put on their, you know, kind of their outfits that are still very trendy and still very current with what's happening in out 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 east, but still live here. And in fact, like they don't even have to learn English necessarily because there's so many pockets of places there that just do Cantonese only or Mandarin only conversations. It takes a bit longer, I feel like, in Canada for them to sort of westernize, if that makes sense. They can retain their culture so much better. The average Cantonese young adult in their 20s and 30s speaks much better Chinese than any Chinese American I've ever met in the States. Um, so there's some of those cultural differences I've noticed um, in terms of how they identify themselves. I've also noticed they don't have a lot of internalized hatred of themselves the way I felt like I grew up with in the US because I had such a strong sense of like, I'm not good enough because I'm not white, you know, kind of feeling that the white girls don't give me any time of day or I'm seen as the nerdy, like blah, 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 or I'm being picked on for this and that. Like, again, because there's so many Chinese living in these neighborhoods, they don't feel that sense of like, um, that that inferiority that comes out because there's just so many people like them they don't they don't have to worry about it and so i've noticed that too that sometimes because of that they don't grow up with a sense of racialized sense of self as strongly and therefore they also don't get as bent out of shape about racism to them it's like not as big of a deal because there's not a lot of white people around terrorizing me so you know what do you mean? I don't, I, I'm a doctor now. Like I'm doing fine. Like I, I've got, I've, I've got my advantage here and I'm doing, I have my opportunities. I've never been discriminated against blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that as you were sharing about some of these distinctions that I thought was really interesting was even growing up or, or in college. Um, I think when we talked about like, um, the demographics of like Chicago compared to Toronto, like we always talked about, I, I felt like I heard this language of like, um, Chicago is like a mosaic, right? Like there's these little neighborhoods all over mm. the place where you have, um, ethnic, identity. you know, ethnic specific groups that really live in these areas. Whereas compared to like, say in Toronto or in other parts of Canada, it was more like a melting pot where everyone just kind of blended together. Um, and you know, much more uh, open to having uh, intercultural friendships and relationships and, and things like that. But but what I find interesting is that what you just described actually seems like the opposite when you like like maybe that effect has produced the opposite effect culturally, where 
in some ways, I don't know, maybe because cause what it sounded like you were saying is that in the U.S., it's not necessarily that cultures have blended, but they've been you're forced to be swallowed up by mm. the majority culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the dominant uh, American culture, whatever that looks like, wherever you're from, whereas the opposite effect of maybe having all these cultures mingled together in Canada is it's produced. Um, it's kind of preserved the integrity of some of these individual cultures on their own, which I think is, is really interesting how it's almost the reverse effect from a from like a um, people standpoint, you get the reverse effect culturally. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it, that's fascinating to me because you know we don't have a lot of guests serving in Canada and to hear about our neighbors to the north, which I think for a lot of Americans, we look at Canada as just like, it's, very, it's like the same, right? You know, like yeah. speak the same language. I mean, obviously I speak French in parts of Canada and we don't, but like, it, it doesn't feel all that different. You know, no. they have an NBA team. We have NBA teams, Yeah. you know, but, but as I'm hearing that it, it actually, I'm recognizing how big of a difference there, there really is. Yeah. There can be quite, it's a subtle, but huge difference. I mean, I could spend even more time talking about the difference between white Americans, and white Canadians. It's like, they're pretty different. Like one's much, the white Canadians are much more British, more passive aggressive. Appropriateness is the highest value in the culture here. Whereas like freedom and expression of my own individual rights is the highest value in the US. That plays itself out really differently in organizations. Um, Yeah, the highest compliment I could get in my white majority church was that was really appropriately done. And I'm like, who cares? Like, you know, like, was I being real or not? Like, that's what matters to me. But I'm like, okay, I think that matters to you a lot. So I'll take the compliment. So yeah, I mean, and, and then and then Canadians are much more passive aggressive, like you'll get lectured up here if you're not careful. If you break some sort of like stereo, like faux pas or some some cultural faux pas, whereas people just like, you know, swear at you and move on in the US, like whatever, right? Yeah, so there are some differences. I remember there was a study, I think it was done in the US. And I think it's I don't know what Field. I had to go find the study because I quoted enough times that I need to probably look it up at this point. The study is like a high school and they noticed that they were looking at intercultural friendships. What's the likelihood of a kid having an intercultural friendship or inter- interracial friendship? It goes down the more diverse the school gets because now you've got enough Indians sitting at a table. Now you've got enough Chinese people here that you don't have to go hang out with the white folks. Now you got enough Brazilians or whatever, you know, Latinos or whatever it is that, that they don't have to blend anymore. And so you actually do get these sort of like pockets that form um, enclaves as a result of more diversity, quote unquote. And I use that to talk in my own church about the fact that if we're going to be intercultural or multicultural, it's got to have an intentionality to it. You can't just create diversity. Diversity doesn't equal intercultural or multicultural. You actually have to want be motivated to want to cross that boundary line because mm-hmm. it actually is easier to stay with your own people. Yeah. So, you know, since you mentioned this, like uh, the opportunity for you to teach your church or to lead your church in these conversations, I guess one of the things that Jalen and I are very curious about with this podcast is how do Chinese churches really speak into all these different issues that we encounter when we're pastoring and when we're leading people? And so specifically, you know, for this conversation about um, race and culture, you know, how do you feel you've led your church? And then maybe how do you feel that the Chinese church is uniquely equipped to speak into those into those issues? I'd say, first of all, I did not learn about this stuff in the Chinese church. 
the Chinese church was incredibly apolitical and therefore not really interested in race issues historically. As long as it like, you know, didn't infringe on their own sense of how they can raise their kids or like, you know, once you mess with the sexuality issue or once you mess with this issue, then they go pick it. But otherwise they keep their head down. Like they don't want to get into the like in black, white issues. They don't want to like mess with the indigenous issues in Canada. Like that's one of the big thing. Another big thing in Canada is like the indigenous uh, settler conversation is huge up here. Whereas like, it's almost like non-existent in the US. Um, and <laughs> at least the, the US I remember. Um, yeah, I you know, so I didn't learn it in the Chinese church. What I learned it was when talking to more liberally minded um, Asians from the coast who got education and then they got angry. <laughs> and I didn't understand why they were angry. Um, Cause whatever, like we're just different. That's what a, that's not a big deal. I just use chopsticks and they don't like, you know, where I take my shoes off and they don't like um, the big, the big factor that I introduced to my mind and then helped me start to rethink things was the, was the factor of power, social and relational power and the way power dynamics um, shape relationships and also organizations. Um, and so I started to think about that a lot more and realize that you can't have a race conversation with properly without addressing the power dynamics and differentials, both within groups of people and then the way that it plays out in organizations. And when you bring that into the Chinese church, there's even bigger allergic reactions because who wants to talk about power? We're all, you know, Christians who are humble. I'm a servant, servant leaders. We don't do power fights and fellows. That's for like people who are, you know, power hungry like so stop framing everything around that and now of course in our hyper politicized like identity politics world the word power gets another kind of a political allergic reaction like oh you're talking the word power oh you must be marxist or you must be like one of those crt people or you must be whatever it is right like and so they there's another reason why Christians and particularly Chinese conservative Christians might have a reaction to that. But I just don't see another way to address this, um, the, the impact of race and culture, both in churches and in our communities without addressing issues of power. And, and once you start talking about that, man, the Pandora's box comes off. Now you see congregations battling it out and duking it out and why certain prime time slots and certain preferences and certain allocations of budgets and staffing and all this kind of stuff and what language business gets done in and how you handle conflicts and what holidays matter you know all that kind of stuff suddenly power is like embedded into the ways that people are treating each other and dealing with differences right and so you can talk about the Cantonese congregation and the Mandarin congregation of my church and the English congregation and so much of the abuse and what people flee from has to do with their perception of how am I being treated and, and whether I'm being heard and whether I'm being taken seriously or if I just looked at it like a kid or if I'm being looked at as this or that, right? In my church, the power dynamic is flipped. Most of the English congregation uh, elders are from the English congregation. The English congregation is twice the size of the Cantonese. The Mandarin's 50 people, you know, like, and so if we're not careful, we can start to mistreat our Cantonese and Mandarin populations. And they can feel like we're not a Chinese church anymore and then start to like think oh this isn't a place for me and then want to leave right and so trying to share power and trying to like talk about it openly without having an allergic reaction i think has been such an important learning point for both myself and then the way i try to educate and talk about it in my community yeah how do, how do those conversations go i mean how <laughs> 
you know, I, I would imagine that, you know, at least for our context, you know, as you said, in your church is flipped, but for, you know, in our context and, and probably in a lot of, you know, Chinese heritage churches, the English congregation is often, you know, relegated to that second class citizen sort of, you know, position or posture. That was my first Chinese church I was in. That was yeah. the way that felt. Yeah. And so I'm interested in, in, in asking like, how, how have you seen growth or how, how have you seen your English congregation? How have you led your congregation to be mindful and, you know, bringing the, the Mandarin congregation leaders or the, the congregation members themselves to the Cantonese congregation at, to the table to have conversation, to listen well? How do those, how does that happen? I'm a congregational pastor, which means I don't bring anyone to the table. I, I serve my particular little circle, you know, not little, but my circle, right? And I have peers, co like like uh, a Mandarin um, counterpart, a Cantonese counterpart. And then we have our senior pastor who used to be Canto, but now is the English guy who, who took the position. So um, that's been another shift in the church. It's one of the rare it's been a rare thing to see in a chinese church here in vancouver that they would allow or look to elevate the english staff as the lead because his cantonese isn't good enough to preach in cantonese and he doesn't speak mandarin so suddenly it's like oh are we even a chinese church anymore <laughs> you don't have that word chinese in your name like what's going on here right like so um those conversations you can't i can't bring anyone into those conversations so what i do is this i um i have three audiences that i think about in my calling my first audience is my district and my white colleagues and and those who are above me and i feel like god has asked me to ask some hard questions and to have hard conversations as appropriate with people that are leading me and that I'm peers with outside of my Chinese church ghetto or whatever you want to call it and engage um, across culture. And so I'm getting invitations to do that now, which has been amazing. Um, I, I couldn't believe one of the things I was scared about going from a white majority church back to a Chinese church was God, I'm going to go relegate myself back to the ghetto and I'm not going to get invited to the, these, you know, mainstream conferences to talk about stuff and be keynote anymore. And God said, you know what, don't worry about that. I see you. So you be faithful to me. I'll see you. And that's the crazy thing is God did see me. And I've been doing these conversations, having like these podcasts and doing stuff like this, even though I'm still in this quote unquote ghetto you know ethnic cultural ghetto so that's my first my first place that god has called me to exercise as well is to just in majority culture settings talk to people and then the second one is um i preach i see it in the gospel and the gospel i preach so that means it's in the text i don't have to make it up i don't have to like drum it up i don't have to find some secularized version of this and bring it into the church i can just talk about jesus talking about power <laughs> He talks about it all the time. Somehow, you know, don't lord it over this person. Don't treat that person. You know, they do it this way, but I tell you to do it this way. The first shall be last. What is all that stuff if not about power, right? Like, and then Paul talks about that. All the one another's to each other is all power stuff. It's like, don't, you know, bear with each other and don't do this to each other and consider one another's needs above ourselves. And what's Philippians 2 about? Like this emptying, self-emptying, like Christ, be like him. That's power, man. I know he don't use the word power the way we are sociologically, but that's what it's about. Um, and because Paul's dealing with this interracial, ethnic, Jew-Gentile issue in the, in the early church, it's in Acts. It's already in the story. And so I got to just see it and tell it, even though the lens that I was given growing up did, never talked about the text that way. But you know what? I don't have to make it up. It's there. 
So I speak about it in the gospel and I educate as I talk about Jesus. And then the last thing I've been doing more explicitly recently is bringing up race and culture conversations. And actually what happened was George Floyd's death really just pushed me out. Up until that point, I'd done like district stuff and even personal conversations. I'd never done a church thing because I was too scared. If I started talking about this, like in my church, people would be like, oh my goodness, he's like got his own little pet peeve thing that he's like some white guy heard him or what's going on here. Like he's, he's going to go march in something. And then like, you know, I'm like, like, you know, and they didn't want a pastor like that. They want a pastor that keeps the peace. That doesn't, it's not political. That doesn't like ruffle the feathers, right? Doesn't call, call people out and get us in trouble. And I said, I can't do that anymore. That's not, that's not, this is, this is where the gospel has to speak. Otherwise, what's the point, right? And so, yeah, we didn't put a statement out or anything, but what happened overnight was I asked for permission to lead a Sunday, like a Christian ed class. This is in Zoom, right? This is everybody's like hiding out in Zoom. And so overnight we put a Zoom class together, four Saturdays in a row, two hour conversations about race and culture. And I had 130 people sign up. I have never had anywhere near that amount of people in person or online ever show up to any of my events, you know, without it being a Sunday morning service in my life. And I was getting people from like other parts of the provinces and other states and other places suddenly, because they were hungry, right? It's all over the social media feeds. Everybody's trying to figure out how do I think about this as a Christian? And I finally had all this material that I hadn't used and God was like, you need to use this now. So I just started to talk. Here's some definitions. Here's how the scriptures talk about this. Here's what racism is. Here's what we need to address. Here's how I've journeyed through it. Here's what we, you know, here's the humility that we need to, to address this issue. So I'm in slowly starting to plant seeds now. And the, the, but the difference is that they wanted to hear it. I wasn't jamming anything down their throats. They, they were hungry because of what was happening in the world to want to get education on this. And for such a time as this, right? That's what I noticed. You know, I, I really love how you you pointed us back to like this is in the scriptures that this is not something that you're bringing to the table and then trying to you know add an agenda to to what you're teaching in the church. But this is uh, the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the kingdom of God that that we have to um, really talk about these have these conversations because it points us to uh, the true kingdom rather than the empire really um and so I, I really love that i one of the questions that i had as you were sharing this is for someone that maybe is newer into this journey of trying to 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 think through issues of race culture as it pertains to faith especially for someone in the chinese heritage church you know they may not have access to your zoom seminar or be able to you know travel up to your church for for a few years to sit under your teaching so what are some resources that you might be able to recommend to uh, to folks who want to start that conversation and, and start thinking those things and that will help them I, I think point them deeper into the scriptures when it comes to these conversations there are so many there are so many voices now right and this is where if you're in the u.s it's like you turn the corner you're going to hit one like um and and so I don't think we need to make anything up. Um, the people who've been doing this really well, Brenda Salter McNeils and the Willie James Jennings of the world and a lot of black theologians who have been fighting the good fight for a long time, uh, us Asians got to start reading them. <laughs> and I know it can be a touchy relationship to try to figure out how to like, you know, not have an LA riot situation brew up, you know, because of the, the, 
kind of historical tensions between Asians and blacks as well in the country. But they have been learning how to identify, name, and speak from the gospel, this issue of the sin, cultural sin, and also, um, you know, power issue uh, for a very long time. And so I think they've got something to say. But I'm also encouraged because I see both more white pastors taking the platforms. I think of David Swanson and, and Daniel Hill in Chicago who are doing some of this work. Um, I think, and then also Asian Americans who are starting to get their voices heard. You know, we think of people like Sun Chan and uh, my friend Dave Leong out in SPU, Seattle Pacific University, who wrote like a race and place book. And there's, there's others now. That's encouraging to me because I see both grassroots work, I see academic level work, and then I see, and it's coming from different voices within different sub subgroups. So go find your group that you're comfortable with. Like you know, there are podcasts out there. Reclaiming my theology is a, is a progressive podcast, but there's some some pretty intense stuff being talked about. Like Brandy goes through like multiple seasons of things where where she breaks down white supremacy and what it looks like in the church and in the world. And if you have no idea where to start, go there and listen. Yeah, you might not agree with everything. I get it, right? She's liberal on certain issues that you know conservatives are going to have an issue with. But but on this race stuff, she she sees things that we need to learn to see and speak about. So there's resources out there, I think, these days. Um, and you got to find a tribe of people who care. And maybe you don't have them around you in your small group or in your church or your pastor. But look in your city. Look in look in your state. Look online. You'll find them. Yeah, that's a good word. I appreciate that. And and certainly it's exciting to see. I think it's encouraging to see sort of as you're kind of, you know, you know, laying out those different levels of seeing growth happen, of seeing where, you know, these conversations are taking place. That's so encouraging. And I feel like we could probably talk about this for a while, but, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll bring you on for another podcast. And Let's do it. I know you've got a lot more to say about this and definitely some other things, but um, for this episode, we close with the same question with every guest. And uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What is one piece of advice or encouragement you would give someone currently serving in the Chinese Heritage Church? Oh, uh, the suffering is real, friend. Um, <laughs> uh, don't do it alone. Um, so many of us, because of the resources we have around us, because of the burdens put on us, because of the hours demanded of us, um, just, you know, we're, we're stuck in our own churches and we see only the things that are happening there. Um, I just want to encourage our people to like look up and look out. Um, and maybe they're not going to pay you to do this. You're going to have to try to be creative and figure out ways to like talk to someone who's not Chinese and, and engage with their voices and find out what their churches are like and, and, and see something beyond what we're so used to doing as status quo. Um, not to say that what we're doing is wrong, but there's just more flavor out there than what we've been tasting. And so we need to find people who we trust, who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who do things a little different than we are to stretch us, to like challenge our assumptions, to help us see things in a different way. Uh, and then also just to encourage us to hear our story, because I think us pastors who serve in these churches, we, we, are, we carry a lot. And then we don't always feel like we can say much, right? Because we don't, we, you know, Chinese churches keep the peace at all costs and don't speak up a certain way and, you know, to be respectful and all this. And yeah, like most English pastors and servants are at that lower level, mid-tier, like sort of in the organization. So we don't have a lot of places we can talk about when we hit really difficult situations. So go go out and look. For years now, I have had a spiritual director, 
and a counselor who I meet on a regular basis. In fact, I have now got my church supplementing my fees to pay for that as my part of my spiritual care. They took it out of my academic book fund. <laughs> Anyways, I was like, fine, that's fine. That's fine. I'll find another way to buy books. But like, I want you to value this for me because I need someone that cares for my soul and I need someone that I can talk about my mental health with because those things take huge hits when we do work, right? It's already isolating enough. So that's my word to them. Yeah, that's a good word, Josh. Thank you so much for sharing that insight and also just from your experience and the ministry that you're doing um, up at your church in Vancouver. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a joy to, to get to know you and to hear your story. So thank you for hanging out with us today. Yeah, man, thanks for the invite. Let's do it again. Thanks, Josh. That's the end of our episode. Thanks for joining us today on the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the pod on whatever platform you listen to us on. Rate and review us and check in every week as we explore the joys and challenges of ministry in the Chinese church. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bamboo Pastors. See you next time.